jumping into our bandwagon, stepping on our lawn mm-hmm, in the space mm-hmm. that we were doing it before it was cool. Yeah, and we certainly don't necessarily make it cool. <laughs> this, is, this is true. The, the fact that nobody did it, that was what was cool about it. Was, uh, the fact that everybody else is doing it now. Maybe we'll go back to in person just because we don't like to be. Yeah. Um, no, Which is counterculture. <laughs> yeah. Once it's cool, we don't want to do it anymore. It's like that band you were listening to um, when you're, uh, you know, when they were playing in front of five people, all of a sudden they're <laughs> on TV. Uh, and um, you're like, oh, no, nah, not interested in them anymore. I actually had that experience. I remember, I remember seeing bands like who, you know, with like you know, a dozen people at gigs and been like they're on the radio. Oh, yeah. And, and you'd be like, uh, nah, sorry, I'm out. <laughs> I was a real fan first. I remember before they got famous. They've sold out now, man. They're sold out. I, I actually do kind of have that feeling with Muse. Like their first, um, uh, their first kind of major album uh showbiz and i absolutely fell in love with that and then the next few albums that they had over there like uh, origin of symmetry and um fuck what are the names of their bloody albums now but they sunburn kind of, was their first record sunburn yeah and um that was sort of like fuck yeah that was amazing and then people so over the following years they go oh yeah they're like this generation's queen everyone loves them it's like they don't really sound much like Queen. Actually, I would argue they sound a lot like Queen. Have you listened to anything since Black Holes and Super, um, Black Holes and Revelations? So their newer stuff. Their newer stuff. Like yeah. their newer Like their newer stuff is basically um, uh, the Resistance, for example. It's mm. basically an album of Queen covers that are originals. Um, like they sound a shit ton like Queen. They are a lot like Queen. Um, it's, I, I, it's, it's, it's uncanny how, like, I would say their first three records mm. were like not, they were kind of, mm. very, I remember when they first started out, people were like, they have a new radio head. Um, <laughs> oh no, one is enough. Thank you. Um, <laughs> since the man has been to see Nickelback more than once. Um, but, um, but, hey, there's um, only one Nickelback. <laughs> that is, that is correct. Um, so but it was that thing, that a comparison when they first came out, which obviously they, I don't mm. think was apt, but I guess you can kind of see it in their early stuff, but their first three records were, were one thing. They were kind of, they kind of built their own sound there. Mm. Um, but then, like after that, then I mean, you got the resistance and drones and whatever else. I don't listen to their records anymore. They're very, very self-indulgent and pompous now. Um, but yeah, I, I really hear a very strong. I remember the resistance in particular, mm. like a really strong. Like someone had sat down and really got into Queen while they were making that record. That one definitely. I do. I do hear it there. But when people were saying saying that they sound like Queen before that album, it's like mm, I don't really no. sound hear it. I didn't hear it before that record. That was really mm. actually kind of annoyed me about it. it. Was like I don't need you to sound mm. like Queen. No. Anyway, so Queen are a great band, but I, you know, and I always say like, uh, if you're gonna rip somebody off, rip off the best. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And they've so, certainly made success for themselves. Yeah, you know, they're popular. They're, they're an excellent choice. I remember seeing them here in Melbourne when they played at Festival Hall in front of a couple of thousand people. And then, you know, in a few years, they're playing you know, giant stadiums. And, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> sorry. I am. I don't want to be that guy. He's a bit too cool for him. But, yeah, I, I, I am more often than not that guy. <laughs> so I should just own it. Yeah. 
Well, that's just because you are a trendsetter, as we are on our <laughs> producers. Indeed. Um, <laughs> we were just talking, actually. So this week is an exciting week for, for, for me and, and, and mm-hmm. you know, and then, uh, of course, the world as a result. Um, yep. <laughs> um, I am actually going back to the movies this weekend for the first time since um, maybe February. Uh, I think the last movie that we both watched at the cinema was Birds of Prey. It would have been, yeah, so February, early March. And uh, whenever that was out of the cinemas here in Australia. And um, gosh, imagine if that was the last thing you ever saw. Like, I mean, how disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Every now and again, I meet someone who's, um, oh, it's so good. And you're like, all right. Um, Anyway, I'm going to finally get into seeing Tenet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Astor, the, uh, the glorious Astor Theatre here in um, mm-hmm. in Melbourne. So um, I'm very excited to, to finally get to see it because I've managed to avoid spoilers and reviews for the last Me too. three months or so since it actually came out everywhere else. I am, I am gunning to see that in the cinema. I have purposefully ignored the Wikipedia page, any reviews, anything. I think I've only actually even watched the trailer maybe twice. So I just want to go in with as much of a fresh perspective as possible. And I think to rechristen cinema for 2020 or what's left of it, I think that's probably going to be a good choice. I think so. Yeah. I I, I, You uh, know, Chris Nolan hasn't exactly put a foot wrong. It's going to be, it seems to, yeah, I mean, look, it's going to be interesting, right? You're going to walk out of it. You're going to love it. You're going to hate it. I don't Mm -hmm. think you're going to walk out going, you know, um, feeling neutral about it and going, feeling like it was like seeing a Matthew McConaughey rom-com or something like that. You know? <laughs> this um, is failure to launch two. What the hell? <laughs> that was exactly what film was in my head. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, I, I think that, that you, you, I have in, 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 in Christopher, we trust. I just think back to what I said it many times on the show when I saw the last Jedi or whatever it was called. Um, the rise of Skywalker. That's right. Yeah. Oh yes. The last yeah. Star Wars film. The and rise had, of mediocrity. Then they had that the first five minutes of Tenet at the actual at the um, IMAX theater I was in, and I was like, I can't wait to see this movie. And it was by far <laughs> the best thing I, I saw that evening in the cinema, and that definitely including um, the JJ Abrams uh, film. So um, that was enough of a teaser for me to go. I'm on board. I want. Can't wait to see what he does with this. Yeah. So anyway, um, hopes are up. Hopes are high. Uh, so I am primed to be disappointed. <laughs> But fingers crossed that doesn't happen. But I would just be excited to be back in the theater again. I might even get a chop chop. Oh, you devil! Which I never do. I don't. I don't eat at the cinema. I don't. I don't. I don't need, feel the need to eat at the cinema. I would just like to point out, by the way, that this has been up on my uh, thing for about three weeks now, and no one's noticed it. I can't. Say, I can't read it. What does it say? Armchair producers. Well, look at that. We are slowly but surely getting merchandise, ladies and gentlemen. And I actually did design a T-shirt that eventually I'll get around to actually producing because it was actually kind of funny. I thought so. Yeah. Um, but it was. It, 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 the problem is if you light it up, the camera hates it and just goes, ah, no, nah, I can't do that. So, so uh, sorry, uh, auto-censorship. Yeah, pretty much. It's a bit, like, <laughs> a bit like Trump's tweets. He just goes, you know, that's misleading, go away. Um, oh, you had to bring that up, didn't you? We will not talk about that this ep- this episode. There is enough drama as it is. Ah, uh, no, no. I mean, wait for the movie though. Um, <laughs> it's oh, gonna be that's gonna be so good. I just hope Oliver Stone lives long enough to make it. I mean, that's the he would 
he would do a fucking scathing version. My God. That would be he's, impressive. He's part of his thing. He did the Nixon film, he did JFK, he did the W. Yeah. Film, you know. Yeah. Um, it's his, that's his jam. He makes films about presidents. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How old is Oliver Stone, by the way? He's, 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 he's old. 70s or 80s now? Yeah, yeah. He'll be in his 70s. 74. Yeah. Uh, so, I'll give me a couple, give me a year, and he'll be on it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, anyway, but that's another, that's, that's all going on. I'm sure people are sick and tired of hearing about that because that's, yeah. All. It's, it's been in the news this week. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, let's. Should we get on to to the things that people are actually tuning in for? Oh yeah, I guess. We do it. Yeah. So we are diverting sharply from current affairs to the Cold War Star Trek movie of the Undiscovered Country. Yes. Now this is um a, a uh, an even numbered um mm-hmm. Star Trek movie, which means it's generally speaking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, four, six, and ten mm-hmm. are the better <laughs> Trek movies, um, and you know the rest are better, better left alone. Um, this is actually—I was thinking while I was watching—I think this would probably be my second favorite of the uh, original, the OG, the OG um, Star Trek movies, which is quite remarkable, really. Six films in what twelve years? I think mm-hmm. um, that's actually quite a lot. Yeah, that's one every couple of years. Um, yeah. is, I mean, the only thing you sort of compare about, I mean, obviously, Marvel's one today, you but Fast and Furious kind of do that kind of yeah, one every couple of years now, but they only keep the entire cast together. Ooh, um, oh, okay, you're back for some reason. You suddenly looked as if you were in a sandstorm. Ah, well, that, that would be the sandstorm that's going on at the moment. Just ignore that, okay? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> I wonder if we they, they knew this is, of course, though, the last of the uh, original Trek movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't count Generations as an original Trek movie because really only Shatner was in that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, was and, and even then, he wasn't in it that much. That much, no, it was really the handing of a baton, really. Yeah, before, yeah, the uh, original series to next gen. Mm. And what a ham fisted, clunky job they did of it. Um, yeah. Anyway, I- uh, I actually went back and rewatched after watching um, the Undiscovered Country. I went back and watched some more of the. Uh, I, I carried it on and I watched more of the Next Generation movies going on from Generations, and I'll talk about them more in depth. But I got a very similar vibe on the construction of Star Trek Generations as I did from um, Mission Impossible Three, where it just kind of feels like three episodes bolted together to make a feature. It's weird. Yeah, that's probably fair. I was mm-hmm. going to say that there's, you know, there's a similarity behind the construction of a Star Trek movie because it, this is a very typical one of them. The better, as soon as we've figured out by this point in time how to make a good Star Trek movie. Um, mm-hmm. The first one, the Star Trek, the motion picture, kind of gets shit on a lot, and it is kind of dumb. Mm. But there were some interesting ideas floating yeah. around the, the, the dumbness. Um, so <laughs> It wasn't necessarily a bad movie. It was just kind of, all right, um, Mm, you've done yeah. better in the show and this kind of just feels like more of the show. It doesn't feel like a big screen thing. And it's, it's kind of clunky. It's yeah. all over the shop. A lot of stuff that happens in that movie. It's like, that, what's why is, why they go, we get stuck in a wormhole or something when they read warp because they, that never happens. Um, <laughs> so because it, reasons, it kind of felt like an answer to star Wars. Hey, Star Wars made a lot of money. Yeah. Make me a star Wars, but with William Shatner in it. Yeah. Um, well, think about the time period that these movies were coming out, and 
you know, going into uh, after Return of the Jedi, there wasn't really a franchise space-based movie series. Star Star Wars came in and blasted the box office with three movies and then vanished until 1999. And so Star Trek was sort of like, okay, we're the only real franchise player in that space. There were lots and lots of other sci-fi movies and space-based movies, but they were all standalones. Like you think of, um, you think of like the last Starfighter and so many great individual um, things. And it's like, okay, they didn't spawn sequels. They didn't franchise in any way. They didn't even spawn TV versions. It was weird. Um, well, it's, it, it is the Star Wars effect that got these films made. I, I, mm. I, I mean, I, I see, someone could come out and tell me I'm wrong, but, you know, the Star Trek The Motion Picture came out in 1979. Mm. The original series got cancelled on television in 1969 after three seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been sort of floaty ideas of, you know, uh, another TV show being kicked off. And Roddenberry was working on one for a while. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the actual Star Wars phenomenon. Mm. All of a sudden, ah, oh, science fiction's cool again. Mm. You know, here's our Paramount has this, you know, existing incredibly popular property that they can, you know, parlay into something else. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it was those the Star Wars, you know, fans, it's the Star Wars movies that got these films made. Yeah, um, and I don't know. I, I off the top of my head, I don't know how well they did. Um, but I have to make it, it, it did reasonably well, considering they made six of them in twelve years. Yeah. Um, and as you sort of said, this one is really um, a, a parable about the Cold War. But just to take a step back, there's, mm. there's a way you construct these movies when they're done well. That yeah. is, split the crew up, mm-hmm. give them a, a, a uh, an obstacle to overcome, mm-hmm. and before they can come together at the end to overcome the bigger yeah yeah bigger the big bad threat and yeah. so they did it really well in this uh, mm-hmm. if i go to jump ahead to something like first contact which i think is a really really strong um star wars movie we, we split our crew up we have a crew down on the planet we have picard mm-hmm. up on the ship we have the borg you know doing their thing and then we mm-hmm. need them they'll come together at the end to you know it's it seems to be like if you're making an ensemble movie or a movie with lots of very popular characters that's the way you do it because you you split them up so that you're not having to consistently cut between all these little micro stories and you are able to partner people up to get that odd couple effect of like um the the star trek movie that kind of does it quite well but not for very long was um i think it was star trek in, uh, into darkness where um mccoy and spock are on their own and it's sort of like oh don't leave me and then spock gets teleported off mm. it's just that that mixing of different kind of chemistries there's some um, get down you dirty little beast no not behind the tv my cat is being a pain in the ass. Anyway, but yeah, it's it's that that seems to be the way to do it. They did it in Lord of the Rings, obviously, and yeah, you can say, oh, yeah, oh but they're just doing the books. But still, <laughs> I mean, in the Marvel films, you know, uh, if yeah. you take a look at um, uh, Infinity Infinity Wars, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have we have uh, Tony Stark and Spider Man doing their thing yeah. and in space, and we have you know, uh, the rest of the gang on Earth in Africa doing their thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we have our crew out. You've got, as you sort of said, we have a lot of, and that's a great example. You've got so many popular characters, even more than even Star Trek movie doing. Mm. We have to see, we're paying a lot of money. We want to see Chris yeah. Pratt do shit. We want to see Chris Hemsworth do shit. 
um, you know, and you give them individual shit to work on. I mean, you can mm. bring them together at the end to have a big battle scene and, you know, um, but it works, but it, it just became really apparent to me with, with Trek films because mm. it really got ones that don't do it very well, like Star Trek V was just awful. Uh, and they, yeah. they, you know, it's a simple formula, but they could have picked, and I'm glad they picked it up again with this, with this, um, with this film. Um, to take a step back, as we always mm. do, give people who haven't seen Star Trek VI mm. um, some some context. On the eve of retirement, Kirk and McCoy are charged with assassinating the Klingon High Chancellor and imprisoned. The Enterprise crew must help him escape to afford a conspiracy aim of sabotaging the last best hope for peace. Charles tonight is co-starring along with um, here. Uh, Riley here at my feet. At least he's been quiet. Come here. The weird little shit. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Sorry. So as we sort of note here, we, we, we're, mm. t- we're towards the end of their career. They're all looking a lot older in this mm-hmm. movie, as one would expect. Um, and it, it, there's basically a, a terrible natural, dis- semi-natural disaster, I guess, in the Klingon Empire, which mm-hmm. basically means that the Klingons are going, if they don't, something doesn't happen, they're going to be dead in 50 years. The, the, yeah. the entire race of Klingons will not be able to survive past 50 years due to this disaster. Mm-hmm. Which is actually strangely um, reminiscent of again some some later of the uh, the Trek films, especially yeah. Picard, for example. The Star Trek Picard basically has the same thing happen as their main sort of plot device yeah. in, in the Romulan Empire. Romulan Empire in that particular TV show, um, uh, Kirk and McCoy are sent to uh, escort the uh, Klingon High Commissioner back to Earth, who is going to be taking part in discussions with Starfleet about help. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, tensions are already high because um, Kirk blames the Klingons for the death of his son. As well, they should be, because they actually did kill his son. Uh, yeah. <laughs> real wiggle room about that, right? They did it. Um, you know, oh, fake news. Um, <laughs> I want to recount. Um, so it's um, it's actually going to be interesting to sort of put yourself in the headspace of this film mm. uh, as a Trek fan. Um, you know, 20, 30 years in the future because um, the Klingons had been kind of the, the main sort of bad guys mm. in, in the series and the TV show and the movies to that point. They were mm. really a, a threat, uh, the main threat of, of, uh, of those movies mainly. Um, so, but in the subsequent 30-odd years since, they, I mean, apart from, you know, here and there, they generally speaking been actually part of the Federation. So mm. now we had uh, Worf as a main character on, on a couple of different Star Trek shows. So, yeah. And Picard actually had a close, the character Picard had a close relationship with the Klingons and worked with them quite regularly. Yeah. So um, if you just came in cold on this, you know, you'd be like, hey, hang on a second. Why is Kirk being such a bastard about, you know, mm. why is he so suspicious of the Klingons, um, but again, you kind of got to remember what's happened. <laughs> See mm. what's happened in the previous five movies for it to make sense. But something that's also nice is um, Christopher Plummer's character uh, Chang. Uh, Chang, and the fact that he kind of steps forward. He's part of the representative um, for the ambassador, played by David Warner, Chancellor Gorkon. Um, there's an amazing cast in this movie, by the way. <laughs> it is all... an interesting cast. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've got the standard. Trek crew, uh, you know, Shatner, Nimoy, uh, DeForest Kelly, James mm. Doohan, Walter Koenig, uh, Nishan Nichols, George Takai. Mm. Uh, I was actually, I think James James Doohan was actually the one that was like, oh, I forgot how much I like Scotty. 
Like <laughs> he was really good to see him back on screen again. Um, yeah. As much as I like Simon Pegg, I don't think he's, uh, I don't think he's qualified to carry James Dewan's bags as Scotty. Mm. Um, <laughs> and you got Mark Leonard in there, who I guess could be considered a an original cast member, as he always played Sarek, um, mm. Spock, Spock's mm. dad. Um, yeah. uh, as well, but you're right. You've also got Kurtwood Smith in there, probably best known for him being on that '70s show. Um, yeah, of course. That's that's exactly where I know him from. Is not his turn as fucking um, shit. His the character's name's gone, but from uh, RoboCop. Oh, the first place I think of him is that '70s show because it was on TV for so long. Like, I mean, I never ever watched that '70s show. I didn't watch it either, but he's like, it's a meme now, right? Like, he's, uh, it's a. I look at his picture and instantly I hear him say, well, give the man a hand. It's like, you know, put my butt up your ass, uh, whatever it is he says in that show. Anyway, you're right. We've also got Christopher Plummer, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Michael Dawn from Who Played Worf mm-hmm. in, in Star Trek uh, Next Generation and on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, Christian Slater. Yeah. Uh, a cameo he got paid seven hundred and fifty dollars for and apparently <laughs> he framed a check um uh, uh iman probably best known for being married to david bowie sorry That's yeah true. Um, it's, true. it's true and of course our connective tissue of kim cattrall kim cattrall and a really weird sort of role when you, again like you look at her and go she's best known now for her role in sex of the city yeah to being whatever character was it samantha I can't remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I was subjected to a couple of scenes of it at one point in time. Yes, her name um, is Samantha. Samantha. <laughs> uh, and she has a particular, you know, a very sort of, you know, uh, amorous character on, on yeah. that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we go back again to what she was, she was in Big Trouble Little China, where she pulled off a very funny role, mm. yeah, really. And, like, again, I thought she was very effective mm. as a Vulcan in, um, in, yeah. in Star Trek VI. It's just... Um, uh, it's a bit of a shame her career in cinema didn't seem to really uh, take off yeah. particularly after this. And, you know, mm. She kind of disappeared until the, the late 90s when that TV show came along. Yeah. But going back to my point is um, the juxtaposition of the character of Chang to Kirk and how Chang knows about Kirk. There is this, much as there is the notoriety of the Klingons throughout the Empire as having been the big bad for so long, um, Chang is kind of almost like salivating at the idea of going locking heads, locking horns with Kirk, who's this kind of almost like a, seems to be a bit of a mythical figure amongst the, the Klingon empire, which is great because they did butt heads so much. And it's nice to have that, just that little nod to the uh, continuity and shit goes on beyond the scope of the camera in this universe. It's great. I guess it is in a way. I mean, but maybe considered a little risky as well in the mm. sense that it, I guess if you're making the sixth film <laughs> in a franchise, you've got a bit of license. You've got a bit of license to set to 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 incorporate a bit of law into your story. But I think today they might be a little reluctant to really draw on that too much. Mm. In this sense, like even beyond, it's kind of drawing on the TV show's lore as well. Like, I mean, mm. there are three seasons of Kirk going head to head with the Klingons on the on the TV show as well. Yeah. So. Um, but I think they'd be reluctant to do that today on, on a possibility of, um, you know, uh, you know making sort of people who haven't seen the TV show mm. or, or maybe haven't seen the other films. Yeah. You know, they, they would be worried about, you know, alienating that audience if you drew too heavily on it. But I think you're right. We, 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 we probably at this point they had the license to pull it off. But mm. 
I, I can't think of what Kirk would surely be a legendary figure in space. Um, oh, yeah. In, in, because of his, you know, if he, the things he came up with. I mean, the fourth film, he traveled back in time and brought whales back. I mean, you know, like, that's, that's, that's got to get so stupid, no matter how you say it. If, if that doesn't get you your own reality TV show, even in the Federation, I don't know what does, you know, like. <laughs> It's just a stupid plot device. It seemed like a good idea at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, it would be absolutely every reason for them to 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 be to be well known throughout yeah, it, the uh, throughout the known universe without spending any time on actually explaining it. It's just you're either going to get this or you're not. And Christopher Plummer is such a good actor anyway that he's able to just depict this. I know who you are and I I want to play mind games with you. And it just works. It establishes his character. It ex instantly establishes a confrontation between these two, which unlike so many movies nowadays, especially ones that ha are tagged with action, the two, those two characters don't exactly have action sequences together. I mean, you can't really at the point where they're older guys. Yes, you can do it, but it's never going to be as cathartic and uh, impressive as you really want it to be because they are old guys. They have limitations. So and to have them as these characters just in more of a psychological mental combat that is engaging and interesting and compelling, kudos to them. Um, absolutely. And to sort of go back to it again, um, you know, it, it's something that done, it's actually a very effective formula in the Trek films. If you mm -hmm. go back to something like Rafa Khan, which is generally acknowledged as being the best, mm -hmm. I, I didn't enjoy it as much as, as The Voyage Home, but anyway, um, but that, 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 that great, um, you know, battle of wits between, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Khan and Kirk, you know, is the highlight of the story. Yeah, um, it's not. You know, I think that's what I think uh, separated the films from a TV show. You know, the TV show was kind of a space western. Yeah, for want of a better term, like that's really what it was. Like Kirk could be beating the shit out of somebody in every episode, taking his shirt off. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, like it's, <laughs> he's pretty much the Hulk Hogan, you know. Um, <laughs> and, he's you know, cooking out. <laughs> And so, you know, it'd be um, cooking out would be kind of like overacting, wouldn't it? Like pronouncing every word as if it's a word on its own, um, you know. Uh, and um, but like, there was a lot of those sort of stupid, sort of really lame fights. Yeah, became famous for TV show was famous for it. And it's kind of campy fun now, but the films kind of did away with that a lot. I mean, there's a little bit of a fight scene in this one, which is okay, but mm. the actual main action wasn't two guys punching each other in the face. It was yeah. You know, it was a battle of wits between characters and, you know, in space. It's kind of what we wanted from, you know, uh, our, our Trek. Uh, our Trek really was a bit of exploration, a bit of action. Mm. Then you got a, you got your movie to go along with. I think that's one of many, many things that's missing from mm. Trek today is it, it's just, you know, um, that battle of wits is kind of gone and it's all action all the yeah. time. Yeah. I think that's that's the thing that really highlights for me the Undiscovered Country and the Wrath of Khan as the two best of all Star Trek movies because they are it, they do essentially what the Marvel movies are doing now where they go all right we want to do a buddy cop movie but we're just going to uh, transplant the cops with Thor 
and Hulk, that The Wrath of Khan is a submarine movie. That's basically what it is. It's an espionage submarine movie. And they talk and the fact that there is that wonderful moment where Kirk realizes what Khan has been in isolation for so long. He is not thinking in four dimensions for the battle map. That's brilliant. Well, that's it. He's not he's not a space faring guy. He's not experienced in yeah. space combat. Um so that's the actual that's the um the kicker in that one. Um and then this one, the undiscovered country, is an as a Cold War spy movie. It really is, it, it, in yeah. the sense that there are actual serious nods in there for the history nerds, apart mm. from the fact that it came out in 1991, you know, which was right in the middle of, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and um, the Soviet Union dissolved at the end of that year in 1991. Um, in particular, the one that, that always um, notable to me um, in a scene where during a trial, uh, with, with Kirk and, and, and um, McCoy, uh, when Chang, you know, uh, yells a question and he sort of demands, us, don't wait for the translation. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is actually, you know, um, it's reminiscent of a scene at the, uh, at the UN, of a, of a um, exchange between the uh, US uh, UN ambassador mm. and the uh, Soviet ambassador about the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, which is um, based Adelaide Stevenson said, that, yeah, don't wait for the translation. It was a really famous sort of moment from from the history of the Cold War. So mm. they're not actually disguising it particularly well. It's 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 very much in your face. Even I mean to me now because I'm a history nerd, but <laughs> in nineteen ninety one it would have been really in your face because it was such a um it was know, very present. <laughs> present moment. And, and I've always felt uh, I mean I don't I don't know if I've actually read this anywhere. It's just something I came up with myself because Roddenberry was um uh, a veteran. He he served yeah. in the Second World War in, in the Pacific. If I'm not mistaken, he flew planes. Um, and I've always felt a little bit like Tolkien. You know, he he served in the First World War, if I'm not mistaken, or at least the yeah. books were written around that time. And uh, you know, you can if you look at it from through that lens, you can kind of see, you know, maybe the Germans of the Orcs and you know yada yada yada. You can yeah. see the influence of his of the world around him in that war in those books. Um, and I think you can see the influence of of, of uh, Roddenberry's service in early Trek. I think the Klingons, you know, are, are meant to be, you know, the, uh, the Germans of and sorry, the Japanese. I think so warlike and honor bound, mm. and you know, the Romulans are very, you know, sort of sly and conniving. Probably your Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that. That's there's a lot of that. Yeah, that that's sort of World War Two, Cold War era stuff yeah. in the original Trek. Um, so it's it's nothing new to them to actually use it, in, 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 you know, those real world events in the the film. Uh, as it turned out, uh, and I think it sort of fits the time. Like if you're old enough for like me, like you can remember where you know you were brought up to to think of the um the Russians as like this omnipresent threat, you know, like yeah, I I wasn't exactly ducking under a, ch- a table like you know American kids were, but um yeah, I you remember the thinking. Way- about- the way that the Russians were portrayed in every movie is this indomitable monster, whether it's an individual person, like any time Arnold Schwarzenegger was playing a Russian having to work in the US or it was Dolph Lundgren in Rocky or any time, they were just this machine that was powerful. And everyone who went up against them was the underdog. 
that's how it that's how they were perceived every single time uh and that's how the klingons were sort of portrayed yeah. as being this you know unremitting you know force of you know uh brutality and and and, and danger um yeah and it, as I said, I feel like the film, you don't get that from the film anymore because, again, the 30 years of Trek since has kind of really undermined that. Mm. Um, but at the time, it, it really worked. And if you go back to the start, if you're watching, you know, watch the six films in a row, mm. uh, you can definitely understand Kirk and Spock's mindset in it. Yeah. Um, uh nice it was it was it was nice to see michael dawn pop up uh mm-hmm. and he's actually canon in the sense that that's actually Worf's dad i think it's grandfather Grandfather, grandfather. he's colonel yeah. colonel Worf, but yeah yeah he's actually a, a predecessor of um uh or an ancestor of of yeah michael dawn's character on star trek next generation it's worth remembering that star trek next generation started filming in 1987 i was came out in 1987 so we were four three four seasons in mm. that when this one came out so it kind of makes sense that this you yeah. know you go oh we got a Klingon character now let's write a cool backstory for him yeah absolutely but they do they do it in a really good way um I just think that this this movie is kind of like a lot like a lot of Star Trek I feel like this is kind of the last great star trek movie and i know that a lot of people are going to say oh the original the the kelvin universe star trek was really good and it was it was really solid but it didn't say much these are movies that were trying to say something and i don't think you really get that going back to my point from earlier about franchises and this vacuous space that space movies franchises don't really have we're still in that same damn spot where unless it's star trek or star wars there's no new franchises based in space and i feel like it's because the only place that people feel comfortable in doing more allusions to modern current affairs in space is in tv shows like battlestar galactica like i was watching it before there were more there was more connection to the politics and things like that and they it seems like give them 22 episodes and we can go into that more and we can invest more into that but for movies it's like no we want flashbangs we want excitement we want thrills we don't want a political or a thought-provoking movie based in space where there's the potential for action but we're not going to do that we're going to tell a different story they it's it seems like there seems to be a hard line between the mediums for sci-fi space sci-fi on tv versus space sci-fi in movies and it's a real shame because you could get so much interesting stuff well i mean i think it's true we've talked about this ad nauseum like mm. you basically can't get a movie made these days mm. unless you're christopher nolan or quentin tarantino yeah. Uh, you can't get a film made unless it has a brand name attached to it. Yeah, a book, true. a TV show, a remake, a reboot, a sequel, a prequel. You know, uh, based on imagining, based on a board game, based on a TV show, based on a video game. Uh, you know, yeah, it needs to have a brand name attached to get mm. you. Know, talked again long a lot. We talked about the um, the uh, the, the, the Joe Rogan interview from a couple of years ago with um. Guy Ritchie oh, Guy talking Ritchie, about yeah. getting his King Arthur film, you know, made in the nightmare. That was and that was an established, successful director. Yeah, and Guy Ritchie trying to get again, pretty well known fairy tale, you know, um, 
King Arthur story, and he, he couldn't. He had to basically take the release date he was given rather than the one he wanted because yeah, you're not if you're not part of an established franchise. So yeah, you yeah you, know, you like just be feel lucky you got the money to make your film at all. Yeah. Um. So and in in, in the world of science fiction, because they're generally speaking expensive to make. Mm-hmm. Um, you um, uh, you kind of need to you kind of need to have that 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 brand name on on the front to actually mm. get it get it made. I can't. I mean, the other thing here, I mean, apparently they're making a sequel to the Last Starfighter now. 20, yeah. Thirty five years after the original. Yay. Yeah. Um. But yeah, right. It's this. It's just. Uh. I guess a a genre that is fraught with danger. Now, I'm not saying that because I, I can already hear people saying, oh, but there are sci-fi movies that go into more of that cerebral stuff. And that's absolutely true. You look at, um, at space-based stuff like Moon. We both love fucking Moon. It's an awesome thing. But it is by design that's trying to be this very isolated story about one guy who is on his own and that is the story of it uh gravity all of these things uh, any movie that you come up with it's not trying to actually open up a any form of universe or even a solar system where things take place there it seems like they're they're afraid to expand beyond the one spaceship to to well, tell also i mean moon was a low budget indie film I mean, yeah. if you've got a low-budget indie film, you can make for a million bucks or something. Yeah. And, yeah, again, that was I think that was British. So I yeah. think that was funded by, you know, the, the lottery in England. When you buy lottery tickets, that goes into a, a fund that sort of helps pay for films. Like, kind of, yeah. Yeah, they have, a, they have a little logo at the end. This film was funded with stuff from the lottery, you know. Um, yeah. For um, tax purposes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but it, there's a, it, Gravity had two major stars attached and a very famous director. Uh, the Martian had a major star or two attached. It had, um, um, it also had a very successful direct Ridley Scott, and it was a very successful book. So it got past the uh, got past the uh, the no sci fi rule. Mm. Um, otherwise, you're right; it tends to end up on television now. Yeah. All right. So I directed us here, courtesy of Kim Cattrall and Big Trouble in Little China, with a plethora of people. It's Where it's are we not, going next? It's, it's not hard to to take us somewhere interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I did consider following Kurt Wood Smith to Robocop, but you know, mm. we watched a fair Hoven film this year, so yeah, yeah. Um, I I wanted to take us to something completely different, a different director, uh, a different style of director, and, and I right. think and I think a film that will give you lots of opportunities to go other places because again, it's a film with an amazing cast. Okay. And that film is Inside Man from 2006. And we are following Christopher Plummer to Inside Man. Oh, yes. Arthur Case in in Inside Man. Inside Man, of course, directed by Spike Lee. Mm, Good call. Apparently they're making a sequel to that movie as well. Really? Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I've seen this film a few times, and so I'm being a bit bit selfish because I really, really love this film. I think it's very clever. Mm -hmm. Um. And I think it's also very different for someone like like Spike Lee is well known for directing yeah. a particular kind of film, and Inside Man isn't it? Um, but I think it's one of he goes and shows he can do he can do this kind of film very well. Um, and yeah, amazing cast: uh, Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, Jodie Foster, uh, Jodie Foster, Christopher Plummer, Willem Dafoe, Chiwetel Ejiofor, um, 
you know, so if, and of course, as I said, directed by Spike Lee, who's directed mm -hmm. uh, a number of very, very successful films over the last 30 years. So um, I, I think it'll, I don't want to back you into a corner. I think you've. Um, no, I mean, it's, there, there are more than a few good options that we can go to and as saying, well as a couple of bad ones if i really want to very very bad ones and you can't be as bad as death machine that's just you know that's um, true there's yes, a new benchmark <laughs> I, that is a you know and that's a, that's an unfortunate one that one but i mean uh Chiwetel, i mean i just saying chiwetel at your four wasn't serenity wait what chiwetel at your four wasn't serenity yes he was Yes, yes. I thought you said wasn't in Serenity. Wasn't in Serenity. Like, wait, what? <laughs> planning with Seed. Um, uh, anyway, so that's going to be next week's next week's uh, chain movie will be mm -hmm. Side Man, and that's uh, generally speaking a pleasure to watch. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, as we are kind of finishing off of Star Trek, uh, do you mind if I just give my thoughts on the other Star no, Trek? No, please. Movies? I'd yeah. be interested to hear it. Okay, so as you, as I said at the top of the show, I watched this and then I decided to go into Generations um, and First Contact, Insurrection, and then I went up to Nemesis. And the overall thing that I found is a increasing lack of identity. And it's really, really bizarre because... As I said before, Star Trek Generations kind of feels like three episodes merged together as a bridge to introduce the next generation to the cinema rather than just the small screen. And much like Firefly um, as the movie Serenity coming from Firefly, the characters pre-existing they know how to be these characters they know how to do it all and they translate that well. So if you are a fan of the Next Generation show star trek generations you're probably going to enjoy um because they're just carrying on the characters it's like a a spin-off separate storyline for the series which is fine it doesn't really do anything exciting but then it suddenly feels like a weird shift going to first contact particularly for jean-luc picard because we get, in many ways, we get what we were talking about in the Undiscovered Country of the ramifications and the repercussions of events from the TV show or previous movies affecting the character. And in this case, it is Jean-Luc Picard effectively suffering from um, sporadic forms of PTSD. And uh, from when he was assimilated by the Borg, which happened in the show. And you get enough story um, exposition to explain that, and you don't really need to go much further than it. So it is a bold choice, again, considering it's based on yeah. an episode of a TV show, which mm, probably even less people would be familiar with. Yeah. So it's it was a bold choice, but it gave Jean-Luc Picard a real – they – by the end of it, especially the confrontation with the Borg Queen and how things go with with that and the um, the development of the story, it kind of felt like they went, all right, let's get Jean-Luc Picard and throw in about 60% of John McClane from Die Hard 1. 
it's weird. They try and make him more of this action guy when, which is it's certainly true. Um, and, and if you if you were interested in the topic, the uh, the red letter media guys, um, mm. uh, Mr. Plinkett, have you, have you seen any of that, that stuff on YouTube? You, you've got to watch it. You're absolutely missing out. You've got to watch it, especially his um, Star Wars. Uh, he's one in the Phantom Menace was where he made his name. Okay. Um, I'll find the link and I'll send it to you later. Like, trust cool. me, it's so good. He just okay. nails it. Um, but he, so the guy behind Red Letter Media, there's a couple of guys that do a few different things, but he does a character called Mr. Plinkett, which is kind of funny. Mm. Uh, and he sort of watches these films and sort of deconstructs them. Uh, and they did Star Trek, um, the, the first contact, and they make a, a juxtaposition between his Picard's actions in that movie of where he's, as you sort of said, an action hero. Mm. And then they, they contrast that to moments from a TV show where mm. Picard was a completely different character. Picard yeah. was essentially a, a pacifist and, and it, at every possible opportunity would look at options for dialogue and, you know, ways yeah. they could sort of work together to come to an understanding and, you know, uh, violence and combat and that you know, kind of thing were his last resort. Yeah. And any number of different occasions, they, they get, they get, it's, it's, it's overwhelming the amount of like the sort of things that they sort of cite, they go, well, here he is acting like a like John McClane and machine gunning Borg on the holodeck in First Contact. And here's yeah. a whole bunch of other examples from the show. But he was a completely different character, would never have done something like that. So you are right, but uh, his actions in First Contact are completely out of character with mm. the character. Yeah, and it's it seems really strange because he is largely partnered up with um, – one of the humans from in the past, because for those who don't know, the Borg traveled back in time intent on preventing Earth's first contact with an alien species. Captain Picard and his crew pursue them to ensure that Zephram Cochran um, makes his maiden flight reaching warp speed. So they go down to the, to the planet at some point and, um, where is she? Uh, yes, Alfie Woodward, uh, Woodard, who is a face that you kind of go, oh, I know her from shit. She's she's fucking in everything. Um, she seems to be that the overall depiction of humans when the Enterprise goes back to them is generally kind of post-apocalyptic-esque, bit brutish, and yet she being very, very aggressive and determined to kind of get through everything. She becomes the voice of reason to Picard. And it just feels such a betrayal of the character of Picard that we have been um, privy to for all this time. And especially to Patrick Stewart, because he doesn't, he's not exactly well known for being that very aggressive, action-orientated guy. That said, though, I feel like that that what, where this does kind of hold up, you're correct, mm. is that PTSD can, can change people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it is basically a form of, of trauma. Mm. Uh, and you and I are both advocates for, for, for men's mental health. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think it, people are a little hard on the film for that reason. Like, oh, he said all his shit. 10 years ago, but completely doesn't correspond to these actions in, in, the, in, in first contact. But, I, but after what happened to him, that mm. can explain his actions in the film, especially considering the people he's 
being acting as violent towards mm. are Borg, which would quite easily trigger that that PTSD. Mm. So how often do you hear about that story about oh the guy he was perfectly quiet, normal person, you know, he goes off to war, comes back completely different. Mm-hmm. I just feel like you don't get quite enough of it. You only really get um people really questioning it from um Beverly Crusher and uh, interactions with Worf where they have a very heated debate and he just t- basically tells Worf to fuck off. And it's one of the best scenes in the film. Like, yeah. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Yeah. It's a great scene. And they could, they could have invested more time in it, but they, they, they don't because they want to have more of the action stuff, which the action overall, it's not bad. It's not bad at all, but it's, just the weaker side of the story. And then talking about weaker side of the story, what the hell is going on with Commander Riker in, in this movie? He's, he's, he's just so laid back and it's not as if the future of the human race and many other races in all uh, existence. I mean, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to trundle into this old timey bar where my sort of relationship partner is very drunk on the job and not going to have any kind of reprimand. It's like, I'm just going to laugh at you because you're drunk. Really? I think you're being very, very harsh in this film. It's like, I think this is far and away the best next gen film. That's um, easy to say. Uh, it is because the rest weren't great, but that mm-hmm. said, I would pop this in the top three Trek films. And I, while I don't just, I can't really disagree with anything you're saying there in it. Perks. Mm. Picard, sorry, is, as I said, despite the fact that I think we need to take into account his PTSD, mm. he really is acting a little out of character here. And yeah. he, he didn't act like this before. He didn't act like this again afterwards. Yeah. But, my God, it's a fucking entertaining movie. Absolutely. In its own little bubble, it's it's actually quite good. And I feel like they missed an opportunity to be able to call back to this either in the show or in follow-up movies. But it kind of feels like watching uh tony stark's iron man character where the tv show was finished when it's made, it's made. yeah but well the, the character of picard came back to tv ah uh, <laughs> we don't talk about that <laughs> but you know we we both like iron man 3 because it actually has repercussions for tony stark and he has to deal with once again ptsd um but it never gets brought up again and it feels like a disservice to the character development over this multi-year. I would um, agree. Invest- I think you're 100% right in that sense. They did miss mm. an opportunity to try and build on this uh, in, in future films. Um, yeah. I, I don't understand why they didn't because it, this was very successful um, and much loved by fans at the time. I mean, you know, hypocritical, hypercritical fans. Mm. later who pointed all this stuff out which you can't mm. disagree with but jonathan frakes does a great job directing and maybe that's why he was so sure that it's because the director uh <laughs> want to take it cool. but you know like i, I you're right they really did set up i mean it is a fairly self-contained story but it's not i'm not mm-hmm. saying it should necessarily have um set up a sequel but, mm. but you know to come back to the original series films there are star trek two three and four are an arc yeah they are all part of the same. They're not sequels necessarily, but they are an arc. I mean, they are sequels, two, three, and four. Mm. But, you know, but they continue. It's, it's a story. It's, not like, it's, a, it's a new story in each one of them. But the stuff that happens in Star Trek 2 directly leads to that what happens in Star mm. Trek 3. 
Um, but when I say it's not a sequel, it's not a continuation mm. of the same story. Yeah, it's in a way, say the like, characters continue and the cause Matrix, an effect. The Matrix films, it's one story, three films, really. I mean, mm. yeah, it really just continued Neo's story through it's the through uh, Reloaded and Revelations or whatever it was called. But yeah. it, it's the same. It's it, there's it, actions in in the number ten graphic car set up for search for Spock. Mm. And of course, Spock dies at the end of the second one. Spoilers. Um, <gasps> and then, and then of course, when like uh, Sarek comes to Kirk in the third one and goes, "Why did you shoot him off in space? He's still alive." And then you got to go <laughs> look for him. And you're like, "Oh." <laughs> Um, you know, <laughs> that's the best way of telling that story. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, like, then, like the end I've of come the... to collect my boy. What do you mean you put him in the trash compactor? Ah, he's still alive. I'll be right back. You just sit there. Um, he's on a nice, pleasurable cruise. He's in Tahiti. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, and then the fourth one's a bit weaker, but then again, again, the actions of number three do directly lead to number four in the sense that yes. number four picks up where three left off in the in the Klingon Warbird and yada, yada, yada. So we have that, uh, but Spock is still not quite himself. So Spock yeah. is still learning how to be part human again. Um, so we have a three-film arc, which is really nice because you don't mm. get that often, like, where you in in the middle of a you know a franchise of films. I mean, uh, you know the Fast and Furious films, as far as I know, are individual stories. I mean, the Marvel films are usually individual stories. Of course, they've got connective tissue between mm. the two of them, but it's not a it's not the story isn't an arc necessarily. So that was really nice. It would have been, and that would have been, a, as you sort of know, a wonderful opportunity with their this essentially set up their their next gen movie universe beautifully mm. in in First Contact. It was fun and successful. Um, and then they just sort of go and made Insurrection, which was like... Yeah, uh... which looking at the story of Insurrection, if Picard had still been learning to evolve having to deal with PTSD throughout this movie, that would have made it way more interesting, especially... Maybe, maybe he steps down at the end of First Contact and he gets hauled before you know, like the psych board or something like that. Yeah. You know? And they're like, sorry, you're, I mean, we really appreciate everything you've done for the universe, but you're just not right in the head to, to, to be flying our flagship in a battle anymore. And shit and happens and all of a sudden he's got to come out of retirement to go back to, you know, it writes itself. You get one moment of that story possibly having been a consideration at the start of insurrection because for those who don't know starter insurrection is when the crew of the enterprise learn of a federation conspiracy against the inhabitants of a unique planet captain picard begins an open rebellion that is boiling this story down really really simply because it's an unusual story and it could have been really compelling because it seems like data invades this community and reveals that this community is being watched and there's there's a bit of dialogue um with i'm just going to find his name uh anthony zerbe who plays uh commander doherty he's like picard's superior and he effectively tells him no we don't need the enterprise here because you are in our most powerful ship you need to be over there doing observations it's like no let's keep picard away there was a nugget of a story there that they didn't bother going into at all it's a real shame they missed it and then they 
deliver this weird lackluster story which has got f murray abrams in it who is pretty good overall weird but it's a weird character it's lots of interesting ideas if any of them had been given an opportunity to grow and develop but none of them are it's a hodgepodge and it's weak and then it just gets worse with star trek nemesis which i think is really, really one of the strange choices. I don't know if we talked about this when we talked about Picard when it came out earlier in the year. Mm. One of the really strange choices about that show in a, in a world of strange choices that was Picard. Yeah. Um, why would you choose to go, okay, we want to tell a story about Picard. Let's carry on the story from Star Trek Nemesis, which nobody saw. Mm. And those of us that did see it have spent the next 18 years trying to black it out of our memories because yeah. it sucked. Any notable thing about it was it had Tom Hardy in it, a very young Tom Hardy. Yeah. Like I like and I didn't I, I didn't realize that Picard was going to be basically a continuation of Nemesis. Mm. And I kind of like stuff's happening in Picard. I'm like, I don't remember what happened in Nemesis because it was bloody almost 20 years ago and I haven't really been motivated to go and see it again. Yeah. But going going back to our kind of three-story arc, the PTSD from first contact into insurrection where he is learning to control it and then coming into nemesis where he is seeing a cloned younger version of himself he could be the wise version and the thing that connects him the moral difficulty that he has fighting this guy is i see so much of myself i see the dark path you're going down and they they tease little bits of it through nemesis and it's never fully fleshed out. You never get real good character conversation about I've been where you have been and I have been there very fucking recently. I know the darkness that you're going through. There's not that weight or gravitas to any of the conversation in any of the following movies. It's like, oh, come on, this is supposed to be, especially when you look at the stuff that's in the Kelvin universe where Star Trek, the Federation is consistently there they're trying to push it and be more of a military function rather than the peacekeeping and science division of it. It's like, okay, it's overall, it's, it's, it kind of tells a story, but it's half bakes and there's holes and it backsteps a lot. It's so frustrating. I think what you're pointing out there is that um, Trek's become in a way, well before star Wars lazy, yeah. they write lazy stories Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the trivia of um, of Insurrection, mm. um, there's an interesting little plot thingy here. Um, according to a leaked manuscript, Fade In, the writing of Star Trek Insurrection, um, initial concepts of the movie were far removed from the final product. The first mm. treatment, called Star Trek Stardust, involved Picard and his crew. I think Star Trek Stardust, I think, want to see Picard and his crew are forced to become male strippers, a la, <laughs> you know, like the, the full Monty. Magic Mike in space. Magic Mike in space. Star Trek Stardust. That's what it sounds like to me, but no. Involved yeah. Picard and a fellow cadet named Hugh Duffy, who were friends at Academy, meeting up almost three decades later because of different circumstances. Duffy has become a renegade who has tried to provoke a war between the Federation and the Romulan Empire, and Picard must travel to the neutral zone to bring him back. Picard eventually finds Duffy and risks his career to help the other officer thwart a plan by the Romulans to take over a planet housing the Fountain of Youth. At the end, Picard gets arrested and stripped of his rank by Starfleet, due to his actions during the movie, this plot was similar to Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now if, mm-hmm. um, and featured numerous references to various episodes of Star Trek in this generation. Now, that sounds badass. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been a 100%. ballsy 
tough call to make. Um, yeah. And yeah, they went lazy and they didn't. They, they've, they've paid the price and then they've done the same thing. I mean, the same, they did the Abrams effect in the Kelvin verse. The first one was kind of good because it kind of went back to basics mm-hmm. and did that well enough. And then as soon as we needed to go, okay, you've done the basics well. We now need you to move it to intermediate and advanced, please, Mr. Abrams. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of gone, um, I've got other things to do over there. I'll yeah. just leave this in the capable hands of Damon Lindelof and and and, and other people who got the guy directed the Fast and Furious movies that they gave Star Trek Beyond to. Um, and they'll have motorcycles and and we'll make my own Star Trek with blackjack and hookers. Mm. Um, I'm going to defeat all these people by playing the Beastie Boys. Uh, and like, hey, that was a cool idea two movies ago. Remember that? Let's mm-hmm. do it again. Uh, no. So um, I, I think I feel that, you know, everyone knows my opinion that, of Discovery, and I think it's poor. Mm-hmm. I think as Picard is, is poor. Mm-hmm. Um, when the best thing you've come up with is uh, a Rick and Morty light animated version of star trek and star trek blow decks that's the best thing you've done yep um, i don't have high hopes for it to come anytime to come to come out of this death spiral anytime soon yeah and they've tried the reboot option and it hasn't worked i just don't know if there is much life left in trek I think, look, I mean, right now, look, they seem very happy with Secret Hideout. That's um, that's the that's the company who are making the production company who are making it oh, these that's days. Right. Yeah. Um, who have got Discovery, Picard, Below Decks, um, the other one with Captain Pike in it, where No Man's Gone Before or whatever it's called. Yep. And, and they've got the Janeway one as well. The Janeway one, which is Star Trek Genesis, I think, which is another animated series. So it's five different series. I mean, show me another property. We have we've got five different TV series either being made or in development. Um, and there's also technically, we've talked about one on Section 31, which is like the, you know, the secret police in Starfleet. They've talked about doing a series on that. They've talked about uh, doing one with Captain Giorgio, who's a character in Discovery. I think both of those are on the shelf for now. Yeah, yeah. So they've, they've got a lot of ideas and they're just sort of throwing stuff against the wall. None of it's really stuck right now. But, I mean, so somebody's giving them money to make this shit. So um, some they're obviously fairly happy with what's happening in that space at the moment at Paramount and yeah. CBS or whoever it is that owns it. Yeah. Um, uh, anything that for me, and I, I'm going to put my fanboy hat firmly on my head. Tarantino. Is the, is the Tarantino script. Yep. Still, but there's a couple of movies kicking around. There's the Noah Hawley script that apparently was about a virus. You know, it's probably not something I want to be making right now. But it could be like what we were talking about before of bringing current issues into that sci-fi space. You can play with it in, you know, putting current affairs or politics into a sci-fi environment. It's it's almost like, yeah, you can you can hit each other with sticks as long as you do it in the foam pit because it's still mildly safe. <laughs> So whether or not we don't know what's happening, COVID's yeah. kind of put everything on the back burner. He apparently was the favourite in the sense that was a script they were going to go ahead with, I heard. Mm. The Tarantino script, who knows what the hell's happening with it. But apparently they have one. Apparently it exists. Um, I don't think Quentin was ever going to direct it. That's yeah. certainly not the indication going around. But I would be fascinated to see what he did with that with, with that, that property. So, uh, And I think that would be a bold choice. Mm. I think that's what that's what Star Trek really needs, especially in this cinema space. If they want to re-enter the cinema space, they need to do something very 
bold and very, very different to what they have served up because financially and critically, the last movies have not done enough. Well, I mean, that's why uh, Christopher Pine and Zachary Quinto and those guys, they had, and I think Chris Hempworth had a pay-or-play deal, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That's a word yeah. on the street. They got paid to make another, a fourth Kelvinverse film, mm. which is going to follow Star Trek Beyond, and they got paid and the film got never got made. Yeah. It was going to revolve around um, George Kirk's character from the first one because Chris Hemsworth Chris is a star now. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, I don't know how the hell they were going to put that all together. But, um, yeah, they got paid a bunch of money yeah. to basically sit at home and do nothing, yeah. um, which must feel really good as an actor. <laughs> paid to do nothing. Especially during COVID. It's like, hey, I got paid to do a movie that isn't actually happening when so I can't do movies. I think there's a temptation to go back to those guys again because, again, you know, I mean, you don't have to. They've sort of built a bit of, you know, credibility or people. We, we know these characters now. And I thought Christopher Pine, and I really enjoyed that crew. I thought yeah. I thought they were all great in their roles, especially um, Carl Urban as Bones. Mm, yep. He was perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be tempting to go back to those guys. And if you had a script by Quentin Tarantino, Mm-hmm. God, I have no idea why you wouldn't use that. I mean, I, the only thing I can think of is that, like, again, it's a bit like in the Star Wars world at the moment, you've got Kathleen Kennedy, and if it's not really what she wants to be doing, then it just kind of yeah, doesn't get done, yeah. unless the Mandalorian got made. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's a Disney, like, going, going Disney coming and going, um, hello, we'd really like our stuff to make money, please, so just get mm-hmm. lost with your, your shitty films. We'd have the TV show over here that everyone wants to see. Um because right, there look. is another another little cog in the in the continuation of the Kelvin universe is Anton Yelchin is no longer with us sadly and so they would either recast Chekhov or <laughs> they went have, yeah or they would have to shake up the quote unquote OG team with a new person it's it's weird because you know when you think of the characters of Kirk, of Spock, of Bones, of Scotty, you think of all of them as a team. You don't think, oh, Kirk, Spock, and Phil. <laughs> um, I, I think I think so. Like you know, I think there's there's lots of creative ways you can handle it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they'd, they'd probably do something really fucking stupid, like gender bend it by going, "It's Chekhov's sister, Irina." <laughs> <laughs> you know diversity you know um but, oh you know. we forgot to tell you in the other movies but this version of Chekhov was actually in a transsexual relationship with a robot and this is going to be continuation exactly right you know um that would be that would that would be what they would probably do because they're a bunch of idiots um <laughs> you, something, you could do something really interesting right like um what and it would we- be a great way of doing something, like I said before, something bold, because you are literally injecting a new person into the mix, this core mix. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a new person. Like, uh, I, Trekkies like me really enjoy those connections. Like we said, Michael Dorn's mm. character in this film is related to Worf in the other series. Um, that's really cool. Um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a Klingon translator in this film who was – a captain in Star Trek V who attacked Kirk, who's now been demoted. That's right. So, you know, I like those little connections that these are characters who yeah. we know about, like George Kirk in 
in um, the the, uh, the Kelvinverse film. It was a cool little addition. We hadn't seen yeah. George Kirk before. Um, so what if it was something like Wesley Crush's grandfather? Oh. And, you know, like you could get Will Wheaton involved. I don't know. Will want to do it. I mean, it'd be kind of funny. Maybe you don't want Will in your movie because it'd be a little bit too in your face. But, like, you know, but like, there's a, there's a well, beloved, a, a notable character we know about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, or you could, shudder to say it, you could connect to Discovery because they're kind of in the same universe as the Enterprise. So, mm-hmm. um, you know. I, I, Second cousin to Michael Burnham. Something like that. You're like Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Burnham, right? Or something, I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh, no. That's worse we, we than are, my film. We, we are long overdue for an Australian character in these films. Yeah. <laughs> on screen, Struth Captain. Doing his bloody best. on the starboard bow. Joe Courtney. That's it. Joe, Joe Courtney, he could do his Captain Boomerang thing. He'd be like, Struth, these fucking Klingon cunts, mate. No, if we're, if we're going to put an Aussie on the deck, then it has to be the Tarantino script with Tarantino doing his Aussie acts. No, that doesn't yes. that, Fortunately, like I said, Quentin apparently doesn't want to be involved, but I, hopefully, <laughs> I think the script exists. So that would be, I mean, look, even if they never make it, I hope we get to see it one day and I hope it gets mm. leaked. Um, I, w- I would actually love if Tarantino does actually retire from making films, I would love him to just release books that are his un, uh, his incomplete scripts or something like that, just collections. Because, like, The Vega Boys, um, his Kill Bill 3, this, so many other projects that he's always kind of gone, yeah, I'm, this is it. And he's just got to go, boom, this is this is it. I think he's talked about writing books when he retires from filmmaking. Mm. So maybe maybe he will. Maybe that's the way he would consider. He's got a head full of ideas, you know. Yeah. So maybe it's short stories. I don't know. Comic books. Kid. I've got to write children's novels. I mean, that would be hilarious, you know. Um, you know kill Bill. You know, Baby's like, first fuck. <laughs> uh, you know, be the, the, the Baby Vega Brothers. You know, that it, it, it's like Muffet Babies meets Pulp Fiction. It writes itself. We have so many good ideas on this show. I should send him an email. But, I, I mean, who knows what it like. Like, apparently it was going to be set on in the gangsters period or something. It would be a gangster movie, like. I, I would love to see it. I think that's what they need to do. We've talked a lot about Trek for, for, for a show, but it's not about Trek. Should we move on? Let's move on. Let, I want to hear your thoughts on The Trial of the Chicago 7. Yeah. So I watched this um, uh, this week. It is on Netflix. It's a Netflix exclusive mm-hmm. around the joint. So probably if it's here, you know, if you're overseas, you're probably where you'll find it. And this film is uh, based on the story of the seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. This film is written by, directed by Aaron Sorkin. Um, if you don't know who Aaron Sorkin is, why the fuck are you listening to his podcast? Mm-hmm. We uh, are very he, much fans. And he's just super famous. So he wrote uh, The West Wing. He wrote The Social Network. He wrote A Few Good Men. He wrote The Newsroom. Um, I think he's arguably, he wrote Moneyball. Charlie Wilson's War, he's, he's one of the best writers in, in Hollywood, if not the best. I'm not sure about the best director because he directed this as well. He's not commonly known for being a director, mm. uh, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's the, the second film he's directed. He directed Molly's Game in 2017, which is an excellent film, by the way. Mm. If, you have, if you haven't seen That's it. another like, Netflix exclusive, I think. Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe it's on Netflix, but it, it's a wonderful film if you haven't seen it. Mm. Um, so I recommend that one as well. But this one... Uh, he wrote and directed for Netflix. Now, the cast here is really strong. 
So mm-hmm. we have uh, Eddie Redmayne, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Mark Rylance, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are just the names I actually know. We've also got some lesser-known actors in here. Alex Sharp, Jeremy Strong, uh, John Carroll Lynch is a name you probably won't know, but you'll know his face. Yeah. Um, he's in heaps of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Yaha, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II as well. He's fantastic in this. Um, Most people will probably know him from his turn in um, Aquaman as Black Manta. Um, that's right. I knew I knew his face from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so- and he was um, uh, uh, one variation of um, Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. The movie? Uh, no, the TV series. TV show. Um, so really, really strong cast here. Now, I think the main creative force behind getting this done was Sasha Baron Cohen, if I'm not mistaken. This was queued up a few years ago for Spielberg to make. Hmm. Um, but I think the writer's strike um, kind of kicked that in the ass back in the, the, the late 2000s. Um, it's been kicking around Hollywood for a while, uh, and it finally got it made. So 1968, let's put our heads on if our history, history nerd hats on our – Fanboy hat off, history boy hat on, history nerd hat on. Um, the Vietnam War is raging. Um, uh, President Lyndon Johnson in 1968 decides not to nominate to run for election again. He could have run for election again uh, for another four years, but decides not to because uh, you're probably going to get absolutely pants because the war is incredibly unpopular. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the end, uh, the, the election is won by Richard Nixon. Um, so leading up to the 1968 election, there is the Democratic National Convention where they nominate their candidate for president. is held in Chicago. They end up nominating Hubert Humphrey. Um, but it's a really, really sort of weird turn of events. Like uh, the, the 1968, the Democrats, which is seen as the party of war, and uh, the, the, the target of massive fury and outrage from from you know young Americans and who are, and people who oppose. The Vietnam War. So um, they uh, all these people congregate in Chicago, hoping to protest the convention, and it turns out to be a police riot. And I use that advice: like a police riot is a thing. The police go nuts and beat the shit out of these people, um, and for, for for protesting, you know, uh, largely peacefully against the um, uh, against the uh, the war and to, to protest the Democrats' involvement in the war. Mm. Um, fast forward. After a little about a year, or after the actual elections taken place, mm-hmm. and, and Richard Nixon has absolutely pants Hubert Humphrey and is now the president, he instructs his um his his Justice Department to to basically go after the organisers of the protests in Chicago. Um, probably the most notable and well known of those being Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Uh, played in this one, but Abby Hoffman's played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Jerry Rubin's played by Jeremy Strong. Really good Jeremy Strong. I was looking at him going, man, he's so good. How do I not know his face? He's in stuff, but he was in Succession, mm. which I don't watch. Maybe that's what, but like he's in, not in, being in very much, but he's a wonderful actor. So mm. um, to, to keep an eye, I mean, I say he's not been in much. He's been in films like um, Molly's Game, he was in Detroit, Selma, The Big Short, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, Lincoln. He's been in some big movies, okay, but, like, he's not exactly headlining these films, but mm. he's very, very good as, as Jerry Rubin. Um, now, here we run into, I guess, one of the weaknesses of the film. Um, 
history nerd here, right? Like I, I studied US history, you know, quite a bit, especially history of the 60s um, being a very interesting time. I'm vaguely familiar with what happened in this trial. I'm vaguely familiar with what happened in Chicago that year. Vaguely familiar with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin more by name than mm-hmm. actually by their their their, their actions and, and the stuff they actually did. Um, if you don't know who they are, if you don't know what happened in Chicago in the '60s, mm-hmm. you might struggle to really connect with this film in the okay. sense that, like, um, well. The character early in the film says he's uh, when they're sort of he's hey we didn't really do much this protest why are we here being arrested why are we being charged with crime and the other one of them says someone answers him by going this is the Academy Awards of protests I'm just glad to be nominated um, and okay. that's and it's kind of a, 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 um, it is kind of a, a um, you know sort of the the, the RuPaul's Drag Race of, of counterculture figures from the 1960s these guys were like the leading countercultural figures. Okay. of their age um abby hoffman and jerry rubin by far and away the most famous but people in here like um eddie redmayne plays a guy named tom hayden who ended up being a a legislator a politician in california six times he was elected okay. um so if you don't know who these people are like you're not really given a very good introduction about who they are okay right you kind of just gone these people are on trial they're well-known agitators you can kind of put that together from what they're mm-hmm. saying i mean for example there are, there are cutaway scenes quite regularly where abby hoffman's kind of doing stand-up shows in the club so you can just kind of right. get the impression that well he's obviously people pay to go and see him talk you mm. know who is he is he a comedian is he you know we're never really given an idea of who these people are just that they're on trial for you know this organizing this massive protest yeah um and, and i can see that being frustrating for people like i said i didn't have that problem because mm-hmm. I have a I know enough about who they are. I, mean, I wouldn't say I'm particularly okay with their work, but I know enough. Yeah. Um. So I know how famous they are. I know what happened to them later in life. I know you know they're, they're famous for being famous, right? But like, yeah. If you, if you don't know who they are, you might struggle. So, um, that's a black. It's a little bit. It's a down vote for me on that from for for um for Mr. Sorkin. We are given plenty of flashback scenes to the actual protest to get an idea about what went on and the kind of event it was mm-hmm. um but again like we we aren't given context about who these people are where they've come from there's a couple of like you know te- bit of text a couple of lines of text in the film at the start of it going oh you know in the 60s there were radicals and they were called the yippies you know um okay you know you know what it probably might have been cool and it might have been an interesting way of doing it is you remember in the suicide squad when we met each of the uh, <laughs> This is the end of the first and last time. Like, yeah, for, flash card. Remember, like, we introduced, we meet a new character with a flash card. Like, Harley Quinn, she's crazy or whatever. Like, we have that little <laughs> 20 second, 30 second you know, music video of who they are and where they come from. Yeah. Um, it didn't really work in Suicide Squad. But, but it not, had a chance here. <laughs> maybe something maybe less flashy uh, or stylized might have worked here. It's like, you know, like we introduced to Abby Hoffman and we're like, we give you know thirty seconds on who Abby Hoffman is and why he's famous, and you know, mm. um, and that sort of thing. Um, I guess it didn't bother me. Um, uh, it, the other part that might bother some people is this is a very uh, some surprisingly a very political film. Um, these people were basically put on. It was basically a political trial. It was a political show trial um, by Nixon's Justice Department to try and uh, squash people who disagreed for war because. That was what Nixon did. 
Um, and it, it has very strong parallels to the world of 2020. And, okay. and, and um, you know, I don't think anyone who's seen anything by um, Aaron Sorkin before will be surprised by that. Um, mm. It's just the kind of thing uh, he's known for doing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I, think, I think he sort of said that, you know, I think uh, there's a line from somewhere that um, uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, said, described the film as being more about the modern day than the 1960s. He explained that the script didn't change the mirror of the times, the times changed the mirror of the script. Um, that's a very Sorkin-esque yes. <laughs> thing yes, to is. say. Um, but also, if, have you ever seen The West Wing? I mean, yeah. like, uh, all the newsroom, I've talked about it before because I love both those shows, but um, they're both basically liberal fantasies. Yeah. You know, like, it's usually American sense of a word, liberal, uh, in the sense that, you know, like, in, in West Wing we have a, a, a morally upstanding... Yet pragmatic, yet pragmatic president, fatherly figure in, mm -hmm. in Jed Bartlett. Um, you know, always willing to stand up to do the right thing mm -hmm. to his own, you know, to bring out the best in America. Uh, yeah. And then in the newsroom, we have almost the same thing in Will McAvoy, who's his father figure of the newsroom, who's upstanding and moral and always willing to stand up and do the right thing in the interests of the American people, right? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, but especially in newsroom, he spent a lot of time. Will McAvoy's character and a lot of time sticking the boots into right wing right wingers and your Tea Party and stuff like that, which was popular mm. at the time when the show was being made. Um, I don't think there's any argument about where Mr. Sorkin stands on Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. No, imagine he's not a fan. Um, <laughs> so again, if you are somebody who just wants some escapism, this is probably not your film because. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, maybe you're very, very good at just switching your brain off and going, this is just a piece of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, but I struggle to watch it without going, oh, I can see exactly what you're getting at there, um, which is the intended effect. So mm -hmm. if that's going to bother you, keep that in mind. Um, now, that's I'm, seeing, it. I'm seeing on IMDb that it's three tags, uh, that it's drama, that it's history, and that it's a thriller. Yeah, thrill is a strong word. I mean, okay. Um, yeah, it's a courtroom drama. Because, because, because the, the from the from the trailer that I got and just the type of story that it seems to be, I'm getting more maybe um, the kind of oh god, what's the Robert Redford, um, Woodward and Bernstein movie? Oh, uh, over President's Men. Yeah, yeah, more of that, but not not quite with the whodunit angle that yeah. they had in that film. In the sense of, I think more a few good men. Oh, okay. Again, without the whodunit angle, like there's no, yeah. you know, um, so it's hard to say. It's pu it's really heavy on the courtroom stuff. Like there's a lot of courtroom drama there, and it's yeah. There's, I mean, there's it's it's um you're never really in any doubt that I mean I'm sorry I'm going to spoil it for people here, but they do get found guilty. Um, um, but I mean, you can, it's, 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 I think it's really about trying to tell a story about um, the political motivation to make people. Yeah, going into a trial of a predetermined mm. outcome. Okay. Um, but at the same time, it, it, one of the interesting things, I, I wonder if this is actually true, is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Richard Schultz, who is the government prosecutor. Okay. So he's prosecuting the case against mm -hmm. the Chicago 7. But it's quite, it's, it's, we're told pretty much early on that he doesn't agree with his prosecution uh, and that he doesn't think he should be doing it, but he does it anyway because it's kind of his job. He's on a bound to sort of do his job and blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. He's almost played as a, as a 
as a sympathetic figure in amongst it all. So I'm wondering if that's okay. actually true. I have to look into that. Um, mm. I feel like he's taken some license there. Um, yeah, so it's 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 enjoyable to me if you like a historical historical courtroom drama is maybe one way to put it. Mm. Um, and, you know, a, a story about the value of activism. Um, but I, I, on that front, I, I find it actually kind of a little bit depressing because these guys they worked really hard to you know and put their, their bodies online in the sixties to try and change the world, but they failed mm. um, miserably. Um, Abby Hoffman ended up killing himself in 1989, I think. And wow. one of the reasons given was he was kind of dismayed at the, the, the failure of that generation from the 60s, the activist generation that kind of conceded and became the yuppies of the 90s, 80s and 90s. Um, I'm putting those last bit words in, but apparently mm. it's a bit of the solution. So, look, it, I enjoyed it. I, I think I think um, the cast is incredible for the most part. I don't like Eddie Redmayne, period. But he's fine in this. I think he's. I think he just says Eddie Redmayne. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is awesome. He really disappears into Abby Hoffman. Like I said, Jeremy Strong, notable as Jerry Rubin, and mm -hmm. a special call out to Mark Rylance, who was one of my favorite. Cast becoming one of my favorite actors. I think one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood these days is Mark Rylance. I mean, he's an mm -hmm. Academy Award winner. If he can be underrated as an Academy Award winner, I think he is. He plays William Kunstler, who was um, was their lawyer. Uh, and he's fantastic. Frank Langella uh, is channeling his role as Skeletor. In playing... <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the best villain he's played since Skeletor. <laughs> if you don't think he played Skeletor, if you think I'm making that up, I'm not making it up. <laughs> he really did play as Skeletor. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> but I well, like it. If you like history, I recommend it. Check it okay. out. It's 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 entertaining stuff. You know Would, you know what you're gonna get with Aaron Sorkin. It's always yeah. gonna be super well written. Yeah. I get the feeling it's potentially a little bit heavy handed for for the layperson who might be in just tempted to dip their toe in. This sounds like a very different beast of a movie to like when you generally think of Sasha Baron Cohen or you think of a lot of um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's movies, there's there's a bit more brevity to them and a bit more kind of wholesomeness for, for Joseph Gordon-Levitt and that kind of counterculture comedy. This sounds like a very, very straight-laced, very uh kind of almost laser focused messaging uh on all parts it's fair i mean it's not all heavy 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 at the same time in the sense that okay. abby hoffman was kind of an it was a funny guy mm. um and that they were actually prone to stunts so like turning up to court in a judge's robe on one particular day and when the judge tells them to take it off they've got a police uniform underneath it and <laughs> stuff like that so you know, Sasha Baron, maybe it's not a great stretch for him in the sense he's playing a guy who has some very firm ideas but could do, mm. wasn't afraid to use laughter and humour to mm. get his ideas across. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's not all it's not all heavy. It's, it is, you know, isn't it? Um, it, it, it does take some, it is some amusing parts to it. But um, you're right. At the end of the day, it's the driving force behind it is to say, you know, we have a, you know, a history of protest and, you know, the police... Maybe they haven't got a lot better. They've kind of for a long time they've been an enemy to part of mm. the population. Um, okay. So and um yeah, <laughs> controversially, that's what the film is saying, not necessarily me. 
Um, it's just don't. I, I don't want to fuck with the cops. All right, like they, 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 they'll make your day bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, um, unless you have any final thoughts on uh, the trial of the Chicago no, Seven, no, check it out, guys. What? Uh, how about you tell us about your live web gig that you experienced? Yeah, so I won't spend too long on this, but I'd like you to have a listen to this if you feel you've got time for it, um, this, this record. Um, so the, uh, on Saturday night, a friend and I went to a gig, or the best, best a facsimile of going to a gig that we can at the moment. Um, we went to a lot, we sat down at home and watched a live streamed Pucifer gig. For those uh-huh. who aren't familiar with who Pucifer are, Pieces of it is one of the side projects of James Maynard Keenan, um, Maynard James Keenan of um, of Tall fame and a perfect circle. This mm-hmm. is like the one down. This is like the really super experimental um, uh, side project that he he works on for stuff that doesn't fit the other two the other okay. two bands. Um, I've actually seen Pieces of Life before. I saw them when they were in Australia here about four years ago, and it was one of the most memorable gigs I've ever been to. Because they had like an actual wrestling ring set up on stage, and they had actual lucha libre wrestlers doing stuff, and then the band would come on and sing for a few songs, and the wrestlers would do stuff, and in the end, they ended up having a cockfight between which had, were basically rubber chickens stuck on top of rumbas in a cockfighting <laughs> ring. It was one of the strangest things I've ever seen, but it was utterly oh, brilliant. I enjoyed it. And- <laughs> For a band, like, and they were giving away free tickets like like candy. Like, no one bought tickets to see the shows. <laughs> um, they weren't advertising rubber chicken cockfighting. If that, you know, everybody I've told sort of had the same reaction. That needs to be their selling point next time. So Pucifer, um, the, the show on Saturday night was um, them playing their new album, uh, uh, Existential Reckoning, that's what it's called. Okay. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. And now well, I have on... just downloaded it, so I will have a read. Oh, uh, have, have a listen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the lyrics are included. I, I'm um, just going. I'm just going to read the names of each of the songs, not listen to them. I'm just going to read the name and then try and give my synopsis of what each song would sound like just from the name. Mm, okay, now that would be an interesting exercise. Um, <laughs> this uh, this was um, performed. They perform your entire new album um, from. Arco Santi, which is in Arizona. Uh, okay. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I didn't know what the hell that was uh, other, way, other than it looks super weird in the live stream show. But do mm-hmm. Google it. It's, an, it's a fascinating place. I think I want to go there now. Um, Maynard, for those who don't know, he's based out in that way now. He lives, I think, in Arizona. He has a winery and a restaurant, okay. which is an interesting side gig for, for a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, wow, this show was freaking brilliant. I really, 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 really enjoyed this. Okay. Um, it had a really super weird vibe about it. Like we, we spent half the thing going, where the hell is this town? What is this town? What are they performing in? Um, it was like it, this town is basically a plan. Almost the town itself is almost a piece of art. It's okay. Way I can describe it. Read the Wikipedia article. It's hard to say. But um, and their costuming was really weird. So so um, Maynard kind of had this amazing makeup outfit sort of thing going on. It kind of made him look like a cross between. Ronald Reagan and Max Headroom. Um, okay. Yeah, super weird. Um, and um, so I was like, okay, I'm trying to f- – and, like, so – and it kind of had a sci-fi-ish kind of theme to it as well. Okay. Um, and and it, I guess the way to describe it, where I kind of landed um, with it was um, 
it kind of felt like if aliens landed and were trying to look human, um, I okay. think they might actually look a little bit like what um, what uh, what Maynard's outfit uh, looked okay. like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not very descriptive, but that's just kind of the only way I can describe it. All right. Um, all right. I'm, I'm just going to prop. I'm going to. I don't know how to put a chat in. You know, I don't think I can actually put chats in to uh, our. Um, oh, YouTube there we go. Yeah, I just put it in a private chat. You can click on that while I'm talking if you like, and that, that's the um, that's the music video for for one of it, and that's actually I think part of the show in the sense that actually it's got a very similar sort of look and feel to it. So it's almost like yeah, if, if aliens landed in the Arizona desert and they've been watching TV for forty years and they kind of tried to make themselves look like they were human. I think they would try to look and move a little bit like Maynard moves. It looks and moves in um in uh in this show and, and in the film clip. Um, okay. Also, I would love to share it with everybody, but I, I can't put I can't use the chat. Um, <laughs> uh, now Maynard is not. It is not just Maynard. I should note it, it is a band um, uh, as a whole. Um, though they do tend to move around a little bit like different members at different times. Um, the last couple of records, um, Maynard's been joined as co-vocalist by Karina Round. Um, mm -hmm. Don't expect everybody to know who, who she is. I'd never heard of her before. I saw her perform with Pucifer. She's a wonderful um, uh, British musician. She's from okay. Wolverhampton. Okay. I don't know where that is. Um, that is a place. <laughs> it's a place. Have you been there? Uh, I don't think I have because from what I understand, there's not much there. Probably not. That's probably why she joined the band. Um, <laughs> so she's got a wonderful voice and, and, yep. and her voice just meshes so well with Maynard's like they're, they're vocalizing together, um, is incredible. And they just, I mean, like you go back to some of the earlier records, uh, the band's earlier records, like V's for, for vagina. Yes. That's one of her records. Um, uh, or, um, or um, what was the other one was called? C is for a sophomoric um, euphemism for a female genitalia. That, that <laughs> might actually be one of her records. I, I can't remember the exact <laughs> title. Uh, no, here is C is for please insert sophomoric genitalia reference here. Um, <laughs> he didn't have uh, Karina to work with on those albums, and I think it elevates him to an entirely new level. And again, she's got a really bizarre look in this in this show. Huge hair, and again, just bizarre looking woman. Um, okay. And uh, the, the staging was amazing. They were at some points they were in some sort of bizarre Romanesque amphitheater. At other points they were in this huge sort of structure with lights going everywhere, and in this big tower in the middle, there would just be the two of them standing in there and performing and doing some really weird dance moves. But just not like Peter Garrett weird dance moves, but kind of dance moves that somehow felt like they're in character. It's, okay. hard to, it's hard to tell. Um, so from a visual perspective, it was actually a visual treat. And there were no explosions or, you know, tanks or, you know, anything crazy going on. It's just the staging was was gorgeous. Um, and then I go back to the way they staged that show I saw four years ago. It's just a really creative way of staging a show, you know, with rumbas and rubber chickens and, and then, you know, <laughs> Lucha Libre wrestlers and stuff going on. It was just strange, but it works. It really... <laughs> It, it, I feel like piece of it maybe for them is, is, a, is a project that's not just about music, it's about the visual to a degree as well. 
Um, and I don't know this because he's a, he's, a, he's a famously sort of prickly character, Maynard, but mm -hmm. I almost feel like he has a whole concept behind the music. So there's the, there's the record, the music, the visuals, almost an idea that connects the whole thing. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, it's an idea in his head about like old 50 sci fi movies and like UFOs crashing at Roswell, and like that almost inspires the music, which then inspires the visuals, which you know forms a bigger part of the whole. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and that, that, that really came through as well. So, um, the, the actual record itself, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's uh, a lot less aggressive mm -hmm. than, than Tool. I, I don't know what you would classify them as like sort of art rock. <laughs> I don't know what genre they fit in. Okay. Um, they're, they're less little, not as loud as Tool. They're not as mm. metal as Tool. I don't think I call them metal at all, really. Mm. Um, they're just, yeah, but they're really interesting, really interesting music. And if nothing else, if you end your live stream gig with them on stage at a shitty bar doing tone-deaf karaoke while drunk, <laughs> you've got me, man. You have got me. And seriously, at one point, he and Karina are on stage while the band is watching onto this bad karaoke disapprovingly. And Maynard gets his phone out and says, Siri, show me pieces of the lyrics. Um, <laughs> um, it was it was brilliant. And I, as I said to you, I think, before we started, I was super disappointed mm -hmm. that, um, that uh, it was uh, the band only making it available for live stream and on demand. So... Um, which I think is concluded now, guys. So I'm sorry. I'm still, I'm totally selling this show for you. I think you can't watch because I don't think they're live streaming it. I think it was for about a week, and that was done. I was I went to their website, going, "Please let me buy a copy of this." Not at all. I want the whole thing. I want the video. I want to buy the video of this show, and they're not selling it. Um, I think that, that you can get the album, you can buy T-shirts, you can buy posters. But you uh, can't get the visuals. I can't get the actual show, the video of a show, um, which I would love to keep. Um, but uh, uh, they're not selling it, so what can you do? Um, other than to say that if they tour again, uh, mm -hmm. Australia, I will be, I'll be 100% going to see them. Um, if for some reason... They make it available. Again, if you see it pop up in your, I mean, if you're curious, do check out uh, Existential Reckoning, their new record. Um, you know, you could check out maybe their last record, which was called Money Shot, which was very good okay. uh, as well. Um, and you know, just keep an eye on their socials, right? Maybe maybe we'll get lucky and, you know, they, they, they might decide, should a popular demand, we're going to put it out there again and you can buy it and watch it again for a week. Cool. Now, my thought on that whole thing is if they ever decide to make an autobiography, it needs to be Roombas and Rubber Chickens, the Pucifer story. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Come I on. <laughs> I, 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 you know, like I said, I only ever went to that show because a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, Robin, oh, yeah. uh, friend of a show, um, actually said so got in touch and said you like tool don't you i'm like yeah you want to go see maynard tonight i didn't actually wasn't working at the time so it was a sunday night and i thought i got nowhere else to be i'll go mm -hmm. and like i said they actually for some reason they hadn't advertised it very well or something so some guy she barely knew had a water tickets that thick he was just handing them out to people who wow. barely knew and get so yeah and like um i don't even think i even knew at the start of the day they were playing that night and and i got rolled along rolled along and so very rarely does a free show turn out to be any good, but like mm 
Um, this one was an absolute joy to have been at, and that made me a fan, and like, I'm, I'm really glad. I would have missed this, but for, again, another friend of the show, Patria, um, who actually pointed it out to me that it was on. I'm like, hell yes, I'm, I'm down to watch that, and I am mm -hmm. so glad I did. Uh, and so often, like, live stream gigs just seal soulless and empty. Like, uh, there are a lot of occasions. There was a venue here in Melbourne called Cherry Bar, which is a famous rock and roll venue, and during the lockdown, they would have band first lockdown when they were still allowed to have bands. Uh, no one was allowed to be there, but the band would play and you could pay, you know, 20 bucks and live stream a show. It just yeah. felt empty and weird and soulless to see a band playing an amazing song and no applause, just dead silence at the end of it, or maybe one or two people are going, yeah. Um, Generic the, noise. Yeah, these guys, but these guys just kind of got it right, I guess, because it was pre- and I did see Nick Cave one a few months ago. We did something similar because it was pre-recorded, and we got a slice and dice that made it look nice. And it didn't feel. I don't think you can try and replicate the feel of an actual live show in a live stream. So try and do something different, which mm. is what Pacific did here and what Nick Cave, Nick Cave did as well. That's great. That sounds really good. That's really encouraging for for so much of it. And it's. Um, like I got home yesterday and Shay was watching on the Disney channel, uh, the greatest showman. And there is a point to this, I promise. <laughs> um, and I looked at it and I thought, yeah, that looks like uh, a very well-filmed musical. And it just reiterated in my mind straight away musicals in, I, I would probably appreciate musicals much better as actual stage plays rather than, filmed musical theater which is what they are because they're not utilizing the medium of cinema very well where whereas you get things like this where they are actually going yep okay these are our limitations how can we deliver the best product and there's that consideration for yep maybe we don't have a, a literal live audience here to to get that adrenaline going for the band or to build the hype like watching fucking wrestling during empty stadiums and watching oh, yeah. football and things it's weird so you to um, working out how to use technology to help bring it in a different way like the aew group were really good for their wrestling they they did a lot more kind of almost cinematic stuff and they were bringing cameras around and actually getting you away from the from these big stadiums where there was no one to keep to show you these more kind of microscopic little shots and it just made compelling story and it made the matches feel more personal and aggressive and impressive but you're right they needed to do something different mm. and unfortunately i guess for AEW because they're so new and young mm. they kind of in a position to be a little bit more flexible a little bit more new yeah. as opposed yeah. to wwe kind of stuck in their ways um yeah. you know uh I, and i think in this sense you know no one better place to think about things differently than, mm -hmm. than, than Maynard, who is a, a really weird dude. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> in a really great way, and it's really worked out well for him, like I said, in, in not staging it like a traditional concert, but staging mm -hmm. it like um, something completely different, you know, a weird, you know, a, a sort of weird aliens communicating with their mothership or something in the desert of Arizona. That kind of really worked. It was like almost, it, it didn't have a storyline. It was just, it was almost like a David Lynch film. Just sit back, enjoy the music, and let it wash over you. The way you're describing these aliens pretending to be humans, I've got this weird cross in my head of the aliens from The Simpsons when they um, attempt to be the the presidential candidates yes. and the coneheads. Very much like the aliens that you're from, like, you know, 
Um, abortions for some, tiny American flags for everyone. Always spinning, <laughs> spinning, spinning towards victory. Whirling. <laughs> Go ahead, waste your vote. <laughs> uh, no, it's exactly what it felt like, right? It was a you know uh, an invasion of body snatchers type type stuff. So um, uh, I, I wish I could demonstrate, but yeah, George has put the the link to the music video to Theorem. But mm -hmm. in the chat, if you're watching, we'll mm -hmm. pop it on the Facebook page later if we remember. Yep. Just as something you get, you get a taste of what I'm talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, that I think brings us rather nicely to the end of the show. We talked about Star Trek: The Undiscovered Country as our chain movie, and Travis is taking us care of Christopher Plummer to the Inside Man. Next, um, I talked about some of the. Well, we both talked about the. Um, the peaks and troughs of the OG and next generation Star Trek movies and our thoughts on that. Um, the, the trial of the Chicago seven care of Netflix and finish it off with Pucifer. Um, the last thing that I have to say about the whole thing is I managed to get through that whole trial of Chicago seven thing where you were mentioning Richard Nixon occasionally. And I didn't go. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot of effort i can tell uh, yeah yeah i i needed to say it and i just said it and now i feel better <laughs> <laughs> but on that note ladies and gentlemen thank you very much we will see you next week good night good night